This morning, uh, once again, we turn our attention to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, and uh, we're kind of beginning a new section here. We've already started our journey through this chapter, but we're still pretty much early on in the, the uh, information here, what we're finding. But we have the privilege today to look into the lives of the apostles, and uh, as you know, there was 12 of them, 13, including uh, the one that replaced uh, Judas Iscariot, and uh, uh, today we're, we're going to look basically at, at the first guy, Simon Peter, and he's mentioned there in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse uh, 2 there. It says, now the names of the 12 apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and uh, we want to look at each, a couple of these each week. We're not going to spend a week on each one, but Peter is such an extensive figure in the Bible. Uh, We're going to spend pretty much all of our time on Peter uh, this morning. But before we do that, I just want to give you a little bit of background as far as the apostles and as far as um, some of the information that we know about them. Uh, it's, It's interesting to me that Jesus, out of all the people who were in his time, chose these 12 individuals to put upon the responsibility to carry out his ministry after he was gone. Uh, Personally, if I knew that I was going to be out of here in six months and I had the privilege of somehow helping the church ready themselves for that time, maybe I was going to die or something. I don't think I'd really go anywhere else, but... (laughs) but... If that were going to happen, I I would want to find men who are qualified and able to carry on the ministry here. Some of which are already our elders, but I'm sure there's other men in our ranks who would most likely step up to the plate. But it'd be foolish of any leader just to say, okay, well, I'm out here in six months and I really don't care what happens. And Jesus was in a place where he gave the responsibility of basically his entire ministry to these 12 individual men. And when we learn about them and what we've seen about them in Scripture, it's just amazing to me that he chose these guys because these were normal guys. These weren't, you know, the Harvard grads or the top of the class or, I mean, most of them were fishermen. One was a a despised tax collector. And we're going to learn some other things about him. But it's just so interesting to me that Jesus entrusted his entire future ministry to these 12 individuals. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, the church was built upon the foundation of who? The apostles, who are these 12, and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. And so everything that we know about the church started with these 12 guys. It's kind of like, do you ever stop and think about some of these companies like maybe Google or Facebook or some of these companies that have just grown incredibly? And you stop and you think, that started with an idea in somebody's head. I mean, what would you do without Google? I mean, seriously. I mean, I, whenever I have a question, my wife comes to me and says, well, do, you, do you remember this? What this? Do you remember this guy in the Old Testament? My answer, Google it. I don't have it off the top of my head. I, just go Google it. It'll come up. All the information you need to know will come up. An amazing tool. And it all started with somebody's idea. And then it just continued to grow. But stop and think before we had Google. Stop and think before we had cell phones. Can you imagine picking somebody up at the airport without a cell phone in your hand? What a pain that would be. Just keep on going around, going around, you know, until they show up, I guess. I don't know. But see, this is a time before there was really a church. There was never a church before this time. There was the Jewish faith. They met in, in synagogues. Jesus came along and said, now it's time to follow me, and I'm going to establish an organization to do that. And it's not going to be just a business organization. It's going to be a living organism that's made up of living people. And I'm going to start the whole deal with these 12 individuals. They're the foundation of, of the entire church. They were chosen. They were sent. We see there in verse 1, it says he called his 12 disciples. And then in verse 2, 
it says, now here are the name of the 12 apostles, and we've talked about the transition there. They went through a period of, of learning. See, at first they were just disciples. They were learners. They came and they learned of Christ. But there came a point in time where Jesus said, okay, now you're going to make a transition from just being disciples. Because Jesus had more than 12 disciples. He had hundreds of disciples. He had hundreds, probably thousands of people who followed him on a daily basis. And out of those thousands, he chose 12 to spend some time with. And he divinely chose them after a time of prayer. And he began to pour his life into them. And they learned certain things. And then there came a time when he said, now you're no longer my disciples. Now I'm going to send you out as apostles. Disciple means learner. Apostle means sent one. They started out as learners and then they became sent ones. After their training was over, they began to receive divine revelation. They were the ones responsible for writing most of what we're reading in the New Testament. They're the ones who were given the mysteries of the new covenant. See, this was a whole new deal. This idea of the church was brand spanking new at this point. It wasn't even born yet. It didn't happen until Acts. And so the idea of God's people being more than just the nation of Israel, boy, that threw a wrench into a lot of people's thinking. So there was a lot of foundation that had to be set down. There was a lot of teaching that had to be done. Well, Jesus entrusted it all to these 12 guys. They're the ones whom it was promised that God would bring through his Holy Spirit the remembrance of whatever Jesus wanted them to say and whatever he had said. They were the ones who received the revelation. They were the ones who wrote it down so that the early church... When they met together, it says in Acts 2, they studied what? The apostles' doctrine. See, there wasn't any commentaries to go to. There wasn't any New Testament to go to. This was the groundbreaking session of Jesus' transition to turn this over to these guys. They were the framers of theology, New Testament theology that we know today. And they were given as a gift to the church. Ephesians says, the per, the per, to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry, that the body might be built up. They were a gift to the church of God so that the body could be built up. They were given to build up the body of Christ. First of all, they were examples. They were the first people who followed Christ who were to emulate his lifestyle, were to emulate his personality, were to emulate his attitudes, his characteristics. These are the first 12 guys that when people said, oh, followers of Christ, oh, yeah, it's those 12 guys. They were little Christs, you might say. They were followers of Christ. That's what Christians, Christian means, little Christ. You're following Christ. You should emulate Christ. And they had all of the authority, and we looked at that last week, confirmed through miracles. It says, and when he had called his 12 disciples to them, he gave them what? Power over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease. So God called them, but then he affirmed their calling by giving them these supernatural giftings. And you can imagine they needed it because the church didn't exist yet. Who was going to listen to these 12 guys? A bunch of fishermen who usually were just, you know, mending their nets. A, a sinful tax collector and some other guys that we don't know a whole lot about. Who would listen to these guys? Well, they needed confirmation. And so Christ gave them that confirmation through the impact of being filled with the spirit and being able to perform acts of god by the spirit of god now when we kind of work our way through this last week we looked at four phases of jesus's training of the 12 first he wanted to convert them he had to convert them you know it's an important thing to kind of do things in somewhat of an order so many times churches open up the ranks of the the membership and of ministries and you know one thing that we expect of people who serve in our church is that they're a believer they're a follower of christ that's one of the basic things that's not being discriminatory that's just saying hey the church is made up of believers and if you're going to serve believers hopefully you're going to be a believer so the first thing there was his he called them as far as their conversion and then he called them away from their living we saw that they all had different careers and different things, and he called them out of that. Max, Matthew was a tax collector. He left that. Some of them were fishermen. They left that. And then in chapter 10, we come here to the third phase where he sends them out kind of like on an internship. 
He sends them out two by two and he says, okay, go out and see what's going on out there and then come back and then I'll teach you some more and then go back out. And then, you know, and they did this. They repeated this during this internship program. It's kind of like being in college and you're going away for the summer to do an internship at a, at a business or a church or somewhere of, of your education realm. And then you go back to school and then you tell them what you learned while you were out there in the field. And they say, okay, well, when this happens out there, and they give you more information. That's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. And then his final phase, the fourth phase, comes in Acts when the Spirit of God is actually sent and he falls upon these guys and they begin the church. And Jesus is no longer there. They can't check in with Jesus anymore physically. He's like, now you're on your own. This is the final phase. So there are those four phases. When chapter 10 here, we're, we're stuck in phase three. This is where they went out two by two. And this is where Jesus pretty much stays very close to them. He's there to supervise them. He's there to help them. And that's what we see as this begins. So they were disciples, now they're apostles. And last week we looked at that initiation. We called it the initiation of the 12. And then we saw the impact of the 12 that they had there. Even in verse 1 it says that they had the power to do all sorts of things. All right, and, and just let me say this. There's, there's some people in Christianity today that believe that people still have those kinds of powers to do all those miraculous things. And there's other people who believe, no, this was given specifically for these guys so that they could be accredited to start this new work of the church. And that's a whole other argument in itself. But what we believe here in this church is those gifts were given to these guys on a temporary basis. And we have to be careful today. Some of the things we see going on in Christianity in the name of Christ claiming to be miraculous works because they may not be. So we have to just be discerning that way. But with that being said, their primary task was to preach the gospel. And the reason they got an audience, because he gave them the supernatural ability to do some of these things. And so when they started casting out demons and when they started healing people, when they started raising people from the dead, okay, people sat back and said, whoa, this kind of looks similar to what Jesus did. Maybe we should listen to these guys. Um, Even Nicodemus said, we know to Christ that thou art a teacher who comes from God because no man can do the things that you do except God be with him. Well, that's what people started saying about the apostles. Um, and, and basically, all this information was given to us by the apostles. He gave them signs. He gave them wonders. And they laid down the foundation of the church using preaching and using these signs and wonders to gather people and gather a crowd. So that's basically where it all started. Well, let's meet these guys. Look at what it says in verse 2. Now, the names of these 12 apostles are these. First, Simon Peter, who is called, or Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Labius, whose surname is Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot or the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So today we want to look at their identity. We've looked at their initiation phase. We looked at their impact that they had through the spiritual power that they possess in the preaching that was done. And now we want to focus in on these guys almost on an individual basis. Who are they? Who are these guys? Um, well, let's meet them. The first one there, the first Simon Peter, or Simon who is called Peter. Now, these guys are just ordinary guys. I've said that once before, but it's important that you understand that. Um, that these were fishermen, these were tax collectors, these were assorted of different backgrounds, okay? And, uh, you know, some of them may have had some wealth, like Matthew, because he ripped off people. But, you know, other ones were maybe poor because they were fishermen and they usually weren't catching too many fishes. So, you know, they had, they had issues with that. Um, but these aren't 
PhDs that Jesus found in Galilee. All right? And there's a principle here that I think Jesus is trying to help us understand. That, you know, sometimes God chooses, the Bible says, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need an education. That doesn't mean that you don't apply yourself. That doesn't mean that, you know, we don't work hard to do the best we can at what we do. But it does mean that sometimes, and most times, God will select someone out of a crowd of people that we would look and say, man, all these other guys are so much more qualified than this guy. Why would you pick this guy? It's a principle that's in the Old Testament, and it's a principle that's in the New Testament. And it's because we have to remember the simple fact that God doesn't look what? At the outside appearance, right? He doesn't look on the outside. He looks at the heart. And he saw something in the heart of these 12 individuals that he knew, even after a time of prayer with his father, that these were the guys to lay all this responsibility upon. Now, you're going to notice some interesting things about where these guys are listed out in Scripture. There's basically four lists of the 12 apostles in Scripture. Okay? Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1. Pretty much identical names. Maybe not always in the, in the same order. Some of the names are not always in the same order. But there's some things about those lists I want you to understand. First of all, in all four lists in those Gospels and in Acts, Peter is always mentioned first. Peter is always mentioned first. He's mentioned first here. It says, now the names of the twelves are first these, are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. <clears throat> and who's always mentioned last? Judas. <laughs> Iscariot. Interesting. But Peter is always first. Why is he always first? Was he the first one to follow Jesus? No. We know that's not the case. John 1 makes it clear that he was not the first one chosen. But see, that word first there is an interesting word. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean first in order. Um, It doesn't mean first in power or anything like that. In the context, it means the foremost in what we would call rank. And some people say, well, I thought all these guys were the same. I thought they all had the same equal authority. I thought they were all apostles. They had equal power. They were all told to preach, heal, and do all these things, right? You're right. Why is Peter mentioned first all the time? Why is he the foremost? You know, sometimes people ask that same question about church government. You know, in this church, we practice a form of church government that is biblical. It's found in the Bible. And basically that is that the church is ruled by a group of men who are called elders. That's what the Bible says. Now, amongst those elders, okay, there's different giftings. There's different ways that they do ministry. There's different personalities. And all those elders are appointed to serve as servant leaders within this church, Grace Bible Church. Now, when you look at those, in our case, we have three elders, John, Ken, and myself. There's there's certain giftings, there's certain ways that God chooses to use us within the body of Christ. When we have a meeting... Do we sit around a table and I sit in a big chair and, and, and then I make all the decisions and those guys agree with me? No, it's not that way at all. Trust me, okay? <laughs> I, I, I would say sometimes I wish it was, but you know what? I can't really say that because we have a great relationship. So, um, you know, it's just it's an equal thing. We all have equal say in any matter dealing with this church. And not only that, it goes to the, the next degree of not only do we all have equal say in a meeting, but you know what? If, if say, you know, uh, Ken and I want to do something and, and John doesn't, or John and Ken want to do something and I don't, we don't do it until we all agree. We be, believe in the, the unanimous consent amongst ourselves. And we feel that unless that's there, we're not going to move on to another issue. You know, it's not a majority rule kind of a thing. 
And that's how it basically was in the New Testament. So he was listed first because he was really kind of the leader of that group. That word protos, okay, it means basically first among equals. You're all equal, but there's kind of a leader, all right? I have a different role than Ken here in this church. I have a different role than John, and they have a different role than me, all right? Mine may be a little more visible and things like that, but you know what? It's not to say that, you know, I'm over this whole church because it doesn't work that way, all right? We have an equal shared leadership, and we're all equally accountable and equally answerable to Christ as our chief shepherd. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he uses the same word, protos, first. And he says this, it's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then he says this, Paul says, of whom I am what? Chief. Whom I am first. Protos, same word. All right? So you might look at Peter and say, well, he was kind of the leader of this group. Yeah, he was. Just God gifted him that way. Secondly, when you look at the lists of these different lists in Scripture, these four different lists, in all four lists, there are three groups, three subgroups of apostles. Group one is made up of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're always in the same group. They're always named first. Group two begins verse 3 in our text, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. They're always in the same group. Group 3, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Interesting that the Lord grouped these guys out, even down to having these three little subgroups of four. And sometimes in the groups, the names are mixed up. Okay, they'll be maybe listed differently. In each group... The names may be listed a little differently, but what's interesting is the first name is always the same in each subgroup, which kind of shows us that even within the little groups, there was kind of a a leader. There was someone who was leading the pack. In the first list, it's Peter. In the second list, the second group, it's it's Philip. In the third, it's James, son of Alphaeus. And so they were organized, all right? They had some organization. They had some structure to get this thing off the ground. And that's how leadership functions. Leadership doesn't function in in disorganization. If you've ever worked in an organization that's totally disorganized, it's very frustrating. You don't know who to go to. You don't you know when you complain about something, who do I talk to? When I have to go get materials, who do I talk to? So when Jesus sent them out the first time into their internship here, the two by two, he sent them out in their groups of four, two together. And so they were very comfortable with that. In the first group, it's kind of interesting, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were all interrelated. They were brothers. They knew each other. They were part of the fishermen group. All right, they were probably very close. They were very intimate. The next group, we know that one of them was a tax collector. Matthew tells us that. We don't know what Philip did, but he was always listed first. We don't know what Nathaniel did. We don't know what Thomas did. The last group, we don't have any clue at all about these guys, other than Judas betrayed Christ. And so when you look at these 12 and you look at these different lists, on these subgroups, the first group that's listed was called first. Group one was called first. Group two was called second. Group three was called third. Not necessarily in any order, but the groups were that way. And also, there's kind of a decreasing information as you go down the line. Group one, we know a lot about these guys. Group two, we know a little bit. Group three, we don't know much at all. And that even is, is another case of intimacy with Christ. We know that group one was very intimate with Christ. As a matter of fact, two of those guys were very intimate with Christ. He spent most of his time with who? Peter. Um, You know, he probably spent most of his time with Peter because Peter wouldn't let him alone. Peter was just that way. Hey, Jesus, what are we going to do now? Hey, you know, everywhere Jesus went, he turned around, he probably bumped into Peter. That's just how Peter was. That was his personality. Kind of like the guy that follows the boss all the time around the office. You know, what's what's the plan next? 
you know, it's like, ah, I mean, it can be kind of irritating, but at the same time, it shows some initiative and it shows some other things. And so Jesus wasn't intimate with all these guys. He was most intimate with the first group, and then it kind of went down. It didn't mean he didn't love it. didn't mean that they weren't important, but that's just the way it is. And that's the way it is in leadership, okay? You can't be really, really, really close with everybody. That's just the way it works. And also, their, their temperaments are different. Their temperaments are different. They're different guys. They're not all the same cookie cutter. You know, I mean, some churches, they make all their people kind of almost dress the same. I've been in churches where everybody acts the same. They dress the same. Everything's the same. It's just kind of spooky to me. That's not what we're called to do. We're all individuals. We all deal with people in a different way. We all interact in a different way. Some people like to be around people. Some people don't. Some people like to have conversations. Some people don't. Some people are very, you know, much gifted in in the brain section and they can sit down and analyze stuff. Other people just kind of fly by the seat of their pants and it seems to work out for them. Just that's that's what this group was. Just kind of a, a group that Jesus pulled together, but they were normal guys. Peter was always kind of in this hurry and he was always on the edge. John, on the other hand, was kind of quiet and, and meditative and contemplative and he'd think back. And it's it's interesting because even within our own church, even within the three guys that we have on our elder board, it's the same thing. Different personalities. You know, we, we, it's, it's funny sometimes in a meeting. I mean, you know, it, it, we'll go the whole meeting talking about something. And then finally, I'll, I'll turn to Ken and say, well, what do you think? Because he's just sitting there soaking it all up. You know, he's not saying anything. And then at the end, he'll give his advice or whatever, as, you know, usually myself and John or whatever, you know, chatting it up pretty good. So it's the same way here. It's just different personalities. It's that way in any business, okay? And so these guys came from a variety of backgrounds. They even probably had some political confrontations. Matthew being a tax collector, Simon the Zealot. I mean, those guys probably didn't get along very well. I mean, it was was pretty touch and go at times with them. Now, when you stop and you think about these 12 men... And this morning we want to look at what are some of the key elements that Jesus wanted to see in these guys for biblical leadership. And especially in Peter's life, because he basically is the leader of this group. He's the one that's always there, all right? And so first of all, as we look at the life of Peter, all right, first thing I want you to look at is that Christ saw that he had the right material for leadership. He had the right material. Peter was a leader before anybody even acknowledged that he was the leader. He just was. That's just the way he, he was. Um, a, 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 po- a poet wrote this, and it, it kind of fits Peter. There's nothing in man that's perfect. There's nothing that's all complete. But not, he's not but a big beginning from his head to the soles of his feet. See, Peter was that way. He was just always doing something. Just always going. He wouldn't slow down for anybody. And the first thing here under raw material is that he was always asking questions. Do you ever notice that about Peter? He's always asking questions. And you know what? That's kind of a good thing of, a, of leaders because they're not complacent just to sit back and do nothing about something. They want to know. They, so they start asking questions about it. Okay, we got this problem, you know. Somebody who's not a leader would sit back and let the people talk about it. Someone who's a leader would say, well, what is the problem? Okay, we're here. well, what are we going to do about it? You know, and they would just be right in it. They'd be all over it. I mean, in Matthew 15, 15, um, Peter asks a question. He says, Lord, will you explain that to me? <laughs> all right? He, he always wanted things to be explained to him. He always wanted to understand. Some of the other guys just stand there. They don't have a clue what Jesus said, and they don't really care. He always wanted an explanation. The Lord was talking about forgiveness. Remember, and he says, how many times, Peter says, well, how many times do I have to ask this? Seven times? I'll help you out. Jesus, seven? No. 490 times, Jesus said. 
70 times 7. And he rarely got the answer that he was expecting. Jesus always kind of kept him on the hook. It was Peter in Matthew 19 who asked the question, what is the reward of those who've left all to follow Jesus? In Matthew 19, he says, now we've left all to follow Jesus. What's going to be our reward? I want to know. Peter asked about the fig tree when it withered away. Could you explain this to me, Lord, in Mark 11? In Mark 13, it was Peter who asked the meaning of the things that Jesus was uh, talking about as far as the, the end times. It was after Peter was told by the Lord that, you know what, you're going to die as a martyr, Peter. I want you to know there's going to come a day, Peter, when you're going to die as a martyr. What does he do? He asks the question, well, what about John? Just, he's always asking questions. And the Lord said, hey, that's none of your business. And it started a whole rumor in the church that, you know, about, about John. He's going to live to the second coming and everything. And the Lord had to come back and straighten all that out. But he's always asking questions. Secondly, he always showed initiative. He always showed initiative by taking initiative. See, leadership always takes initiative. And that's what Peter did. When the Lord asks a question, who answers it? Peter. He's always answering the Lord's questions. You remember when, when he was going through the crowd and, and, and Jesus said, who touched me? Peter, you know, Peter said, what are you, crazy? I mean, how are we, how are we supposed to know who touched it? I mean, he always took the initiative. When, when, when Jesus answered, who do men say that I am? It was Peter who said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Will you go away? You know, where are we going to go? He's always asking these questions. He's always taking the initiative. There's a third thing here. He's always in the middle of the action, Peter. He's always positioned somehow in the middle of the action. It's kind of like, do you remember on the uh, uh, Charlie Brown thing, that the guy that, that, that smelled, you know, the little cloud that he'd always, you know, follow. well, that's what kind of like Peter was. Wherever he went, there's like a dust cloud following him, you know. It's just like a little... Uh, it's just crazy. He was always in the middle of all this action. I mean, it was Peter who jumped out of the boat and walked on the water. Remember? And people criticize him for that. Oh, well, he sunk because he had no faith. Stop and think about it. You know, there's 11 other guys in the boat. They didn't get out of it. I mean, Peter took some initiative. He wanted to be where the action was. He saw the Lord on the water. He just jumped out and started walking on the water. When the resurrection came, who was the first one there? Peter and John. And you can see kind of John, you know, peering over, looking into the tomb. And he, he beat Peter there. But Peter just runs right up past him, doesn't even give it a second thought, runs right into this tomb. He was just that way. I want to be there. I want to see what's going on. He put himself in the middle of the action all the time. And that's kind of what Christ saw in him, the raw material. He asked questions. He showed initiative. He was always around where things were happening. Now, his name is a very common name. Peter wasn't some, you know, Superman kind of guy. Very common. He was the son of Jonah or John. He was a fisherman. He had a common name. He lived in a common town. He, he, he lived in a common family. He lived with his brother Andrew in a village called Bethesda, and then they later moved to Capernaum. And I showed you several weeks ago the actual house where Peter most likely lived, the ruins of it on a, on a slide. Uh, the Bible says that he was married because the Lord healed his mother-in-law. It would be a little hard not to be married and have a mother-in-law. So... Um, I don't know why you would have a mother-in-law if you weren't married, I mean, to be honest with you. But, you know, for whatever reason, he, he, that's evidence that he was married. Also, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's saying there, the apostles or the preachers had the right to lead about a, a sister as a wife. That is, in, in Christian ministry, they can bring their wife. And he says, even Cephas or, or Peter. 
And so he was most likely married, and he probably took his wife with him wherever he went on his apostolic missions. When he would go out and preach and teach, he would bring his wife. And so the 12 weren't just this group of just 12 individuals. They probably brought their families with them as they went out and, and served the Lord in different ways. And so that's kind of an interesting point. But God saw something in him. And I think because of his nature, if you know anything about Peter, his, his original name Simon, Christ called him Peter, which means stone. And I think that because of his personality, he was so all over the map. He was just one of these guys that was just, you know, completely over the, all over the map. Couldn't make a decision. Vacillating back and forth. We'll, we'll go here. We'll do this. We'll do that. And, and, and Jesus almost comically gives him the name Peter, which means stone. And I think every time he called to Peter, it was a reminder to Peter, okay, I'm a stone. I'm a stone. I'm a stone. I got to be firm. I'm the leader of this bunch. I can't be all over the map. And it was almost like God was divinely showing him that. But Jesus not always called him Peter. Sometimes he called him Simon. And Simon was kind of a secular name. And so a lot of times when it talks about Peter's house, it says Simon's house or Simon's mother-in-law or Simon's boat or Simon's fishing partners. And the other time he's called Simon is when Jesus is rebuking him for sin because he's not acting like Peter. He's acting like old Simon. And so it's kind of an interesting naming of, of Peter himself. Remember when the Lord wanted to focus on his sinfulness, he would call him um, Simon, in, like in Luke 5, where uh, he, the Lord says, cast your, your net on the other side of the boat, and you'll bring the fish in. And I mean, I'm sure Peter is like, what are you talking about? I'm the fisherman here. You're not. You know, I mean, we know the story. And what's he do? He does what the Lord says, and he pulls in all these fish. And here's what he says at the end. He says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a what? A sinful man. Because he didn't have the belief. He didn't have the faith to believe in the Lord. The Lord unmasked his sin and he called him Simon. So the whole life of Peter can be wrapped up this way. Simon, Simon Peter, Peter. That's how it looks. I mean, from the very beginning, he was called Simon. And then Jesus gave him the word, the name Peter. And then sometimes he called him Simon. Sometimes he called him Peter. But it was Peter who wrote the New Testament epistles that we, that we know that he wrote. Okay, he was no longer this vacillating person. Something happened. There was a transition there. So first of all, you recognize the raw material. All right? Ask questions, shows initiative, positioned in the center of activity. Found out a little bit about his name. He also had to have the right experiences. And, and any leader will tell you that, you know what? Experience, that's where you learn. You don't learn from a book. You learn from experience. And so the, the second thing that, our basic elements for biblical leadership are having the right experiences in your life. And God brought about the right experiences in Peter's life. Do you know that the Lord gave to Peter great revelations? In John chapter 6, Jesus had presented the, this tremendous message about himself as the bread of life when he was up in Galilee. And some of the people couldn't understand it and some of the disciples left. And some of them just walked away and they followed him no more, verse 66 says in John 6. And then it says, and Jesus then asked his disciples, will you go away? And what does Peter do? He's the one that answers. Simon Peter says, Lord, whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's almost like, when Peter spoke those words, he probably thought, where did that come from? Why would I say that? See, God was divinely working through him, through divine revelation. So you see that over and over again in the life of Peter. You see God giving him divine revelation. Also, you see God giving him great honor and even great reward. In, in Matthew 16, there's a tremendous promise there in verse 18. Matthew 16, verse 18. He says, I say to you, you are Peter. Thou art, 
a stone, but upon this rock, this bedrock, he uses a different term there, upon the rock of your confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, unfortunately, Catholic Church uses this and says, well, see, this is Peter. He's the first pope. And he was saying that he's going to build the church on Peter. No, he wasn't. If you look at the original language, that's exactly not what he was saying. And then he says this, and I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Talk about a reward. I mean, think about it. I'm going to give Peter the keys of heaven. Incredible. You stop and you think, well, in which way, how did he give him the keys of heaven? Who preached the first great apostolic sermon? Who was it? It was Peter on the day of Pentecost. He began to use the keys that God gave him to open up the gospel to the world. Who did he preach to? He preached to the Jews. Who led the first Gentile to Christ? Peter did. Cornelius in Acts 10. He unlocked the Jews. He unlocked the kingdom to the Gentiles. He was the one who was constantly opening the door. The Lord gave him that promise and and the other ones as well. And that even applies to us today. Every time we preach the gospel to someone, you're holding the keys of kingdom in your hand and you're, 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 you're encouraging those people to take them so that they could enter the kingdom of, of heaven. But Peter was the first great revelation. He got this great reward, but he also was faced with a great rebuke. Look at Matthew 16, verse 21. Now, remember, Peter's personality is one that he's a driven guy. All right? So he's probably feeling really, really good about himself right now. Company's doing well. Everything's great. You know, he thinks he's on top of the world. He's right next to Christ all the time, always asking him questions. And, you know, he thinks things are going pretty good. In Matthew 16, verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. So he got his disciples together and he said, okay, guys, here's the plan. We're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to take me. They're going to kill me. But I'm I'm going to come back on the third day. Look at what verse 22 says. Then Peter took him aside. Talk about feeling pretty good about his leadership skills at this point. I mean, I, I don't know how exactly he did this, you know, if he grabbed him by the arm, if he grabbed him by one of his tassels and said, come here, Jesus, i got to straighten you out over here in the bushes, you know, away from everybody else. He didn't want to embarrass them. I don't know what Peter was thinking. He's talking to the Lord, the creator of everything he sees around him, and he says, come here, i got to straighten you out, Jesus. He says, took him aside and began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke God in the form of Jesus Christ. feeling pretty good about himself. I'm the leader of this group. You know what? This isn't going to happen. I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. As long as I'm here and we're not going to go to Jerusalem and be killed, that's not going to happen. We won't let that happen to you. I mean, talk about just having the guts and just going for it. That's the way Peter was. You know, he figured, hey, you know what? You just gave me the keys of the kingdom, so now I'm going to start using them. I've got to straighten you out. You're not going to go, go to Jerusalem and, and die. What are you talking about? And he says there, far be it from you, Lord, that this shall happen. This shall not happen to you. In other words, uh, this isn't going to happen the way you just said, Jesus. Sorry. But look at what happens in verse 23. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, who? Satan. Oh, man. Get behind me, Satan. This is the leader of these guys. And he's grabbing Jesus and pulling him off into the bushes and saying, look, I know what you just said, but that's not the way it's going to happen. And Jesus has to turn to him and say, you know what? You're acting like Satan. You're trying to discourage the very thing that I was sent here on earth to do. Remember, that's what... Satan tried to do to Jesus when he took him out in the wilderness, remember? Tried to discourage him. You don't have to do this. I'll give you everything you see right now and so forth. He 
And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. He says, for you savor the things that are not of God, but those that are of men. See, isn't that a good, a good lesson in leadership? What are we savoring? You don't know the plan of God. You're thinking of it from a human standpoint, Peter. You need to rethink what you're doing and what you're saying. See, you get yourself in a position where God can use you. And this is a lesson for any leader. And you need to understand the greater potential to be used by God, the greater the potential to be used by Satan. You say, well, how does that? That's, that's true. That's how it works. We see it right here with Peter. Used incredibly by God. But also there's a potential there to be used by Satan. He taught him about all this stuff through Revelation. He taught him about the power that he had through the giving him the keys to the kingdom. He taught him about the potential to be used by Satan. Incredible experiences. There's a fourth thing here, great rejection. I mean, he has so much confidence, Peter does. I mean, he, is, he can do anything in his mind. He's just oozed confidence. Even, you know, have you ever met someone who's just so confident? I mean, just overly confident. I mean, it gets to a point where you go, that guy's stupid. He has silly confidence. You don't need that kind of confidence. That's a proud, arrogant confidence. It was almost to that point with Peter. This guy just, you know, way beyond normal, the confidence that he had. In Matthew 26, verse 33, it says that Peter answered and said unto him, the Lord had just told him about the prophecy regarding the shepherd being smitten and the, the sheep being scattered and, and all that. And he's saying that all his disciples were going to leave him and they're all going to run away. And what does Peter say? Peter answered and said, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, I will never be offended, Lord. I'm not like the other men. I'm a cut above the rest. They may all forsake you, but I'm never going to do that. Talk about confidence. Jesus had to say to him, Verily I say to you, even this night when before the, the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said this, still being overconfident, Though I should die with you, Lord, I will not deny you. I can't do that. I have too much confidence. And it's interesting, you read a little bit further along there. And likewise, it says, all the disciples said this. So it wasn't just Peter. Peter was just the guy who was out in front, always opening his mouth, kind of putting his foot in his mouth. And in this case, you know, Jesus said, hey, you're all going to, you know, run away from me basically here in a little bit. No, no, we're never going to do that. Well, Peter was the one voicing that, but all of them were thinking it. And he was the leader, so they all agreed with him. Chapter 26, verse 69, he was outside the court, and the maid came to him and said, Thou, weren't you also with Jesus of Galilee? And he denied it before them, saying, I don't know what you're saying. And when he was gone out in the porch, another maid saw him and said to him, Hey, this guy was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath this time. I don't know the man. And after a while came unto him they who stood by, and they said to Peter, Surely you are the one, because your speech gives you away. You were one of the Galileans. We know you. And here's what he did. He began to curse, and he began to swear, saying, I don't know the man. And immediately, the Bible says, the cock crowed. And immediately, Peter remembered the words of Jesus. And the Bible says that he went out and he wept bitterly because he denied his Lord. I mean, what's the lesson here? I mean, this guy had incredible experience. He had incredible revelation. He had a great reward, the keys of heaven. He had this rebuke and this great rejection here of Christ. There's also, it doesn't end there, luckily. The Lord actually recommissions Peter in the 21st chapter of John. You remember, he turns to 
to Jesus in verse 16, 15, 16. Peter, do you love me? Sure, I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah. He found him fishing. He wasn't supposed to be fishing. He was supposed to be out preaching the kingdom of God. He went back to his old thing. He felt worthless. He felt rejected. He felt like, man, I denied the Lord. That's it for me. I'm just going to go be a fisherman again. And, and Christ sought him out. And he said, no. If you love me, then feed my lambs. If you love me, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Do what I called you to do, Peter. And finally, at the end of verse 19, he says, follow me, Peter. And then Peter finally did follow the Lord. What an incredible experience. Peter had gone out fishing. The Lord didn't let him catch any fish. (laughs) And so you see the experience here that Peter was given by the Lord to help him with his leadership of this group of kind of this motley crew that, that, that was thrown together, even under the divine authority of God. But still, they weren't a great bunch of guys. And he was their leader. And the last thing we see as far as biblical leadership and things that Christ looked for, not only the raw material and the right experiences, but also the right attitudes or the right lessons. Um, Peter had to be taught certain principles. He had to be taught certain attitudes because they just didn't come naturally. And most of these things don't come to any of us naturally. The first thing he had to, to learn as a leader, because most leaders are kind of, they're overt, they can be aggressive, they're kind of a personality, they'll run over anybody to get the job done, that kind of a thing. Well, the first thing Peter had to learn was submission. Submission. In Matthew chapter 17, the Lord said, basically, Peter, you go down fishing and you'll, you'll, you'll catch the fish. And the first fish you catch, you remember this story, bring it out and reach into its mouth and there's going to be a coin in its mouth. What an incredible thing. Can you imagine being a fisherman and, and the Lord's telling you, go down there, catch a fish, and the first fish that you get, open its mouth, and there's going to be a coin inside the mouth, Peter. I mean, right there, I'd be going, yeah, right, okay, whatever. You know, but Peter did it. And he went down and he found the coin. And, uh, and he said, that's what we're going to pay our taxes with. Now, knowing Peter, you might have assumed that Peter wouldn't pay any attention to taxation, okay, just because he was that kind of guy. He didn't want to pay for their system, the Romans against, you know, uh, their whole organization and everything. He wasn't going to do it. And Jesus had to teach him that, hey, you know what? There's authority. There is submission to those who I place in authority over you, even the government. I mean, sometimes we don't appreciate what our own government does. But you know what? We're called to be in submission to them. We're called to pray for them. And I think he learned his lesson because in 1 Peter chapter 2, he wrote this, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or governors, unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So is the will of God. As free and not using your uh, liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the king. Be subject to your masters with all fear. I think Peter learned that lesson from Christ. He learned the lesson of submission. He also needed to learn restraint. If anybody needed to learn restraint, it was Peter. The Lord kind of had to put a bit in his mouth so that he wouldn't get away from him. You remember in John 18, he's in the garden and the soldiers come to take Jesus. You remember that. Probably 500 and some soldiers with the disciples. They're, they're not really, you know, armed at all. And it says that Peter grabs a sword and lops off Malchus's ear. I mean, just what a, what a crazy act. I mean, it'd be like, you know, facing, you know, 500 Marines and, you know, you don't even have a gun. And, you know, you, you, you grab one of their, their, uh, their guns and you try to shoot them. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a stupid thing to do. You're not going to win that battle. But Peter didn't care about that. He was just always just going off like that. And I don't think he was trying to be a surgeon and just lop the guy's ear off. I think he was aiming for his neck. He wanted to take the guy's head off. But just being Peter, you know, he just grabs the thing and wildly swings. And luckily the guy ducked 
And he, he took his ear off. And the Lord had to, you know, heal that and say, hey, wait a minute. You use the sword, you're going to die by the sword. You live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. This isn't how we do business here, Peter. Restrain yourselves. Constantly. He needed restraint. A lot of leaders need restraint. They need someone, a board or someone to kind of pull them back at times. Because they're, just, they're, just, they're always going to the next level, next level. And that's good because they're driven people. But they also need that restraining factor in their life. Thirdly, he had to learn humility. He really needed to learn that. And we just talked about that. I'll never leave you. Everybody may leave you, but I'm not going to leave you. He also needed to learn uh, and, and actually as far as humility in, in 1 Peter 5.5 5, he learned that lesson because when he wrote Peter he said God resists the proud but gives grace to who? The humble. He knew that lesson well. Uh, he also needed to learn sacrifice. John 21 verse 19 he says somebody's going to sometimes Somebody's going to come, they're going to bind you, and you're basically going to die as a martyr, Peter. Are you ready for that? And that's when he points to John. Well, what about this guy? You know, I mean, just kind of crazy. But you know what? He, he knew what it meant to sacrifice for the Lord because in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Blessed, in other words, happy are those are you who are reproached for the name of Christ? If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God, and let him and let them that suffer commit themselves to God's care. He learned sacrifice. Next to last year, he had to learn love. Um, most people in leadership are very task oriented. Do you ever notice that? Just task oriented. They're not necessarily people-oriented. You know, they look at everything as a task. And so they can just plow people under the, the task, not even giving it a second thought. They don't even think they've done anything wrong. Well, Peter was that way. He needed to learn love. How did he learn love? In John 21, when Peter was asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? In John 13, where the Lord was washing his feet, and he comes to Peter and Peter says, you know what? You're not washing my feet. Who do you think you No way. This isn't right. And once again, he stands up and kind of puts his foot in his mouth. And then the Lord explains it to him. If, you, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me, Peter. And then he says, hey, well, wash all of me then. I mean, he goes to the other extreme. That was just who Peter was. I had a guy in Bible college taught a series of classes on, on Peter. And he call, called him pendulumic peter because on one side he'd be over here and then you know in the next verse he swung all the way to the other extreme he's just like a pendulum just depending on how he was feeling you know back and forth back and forth you never knew where the guy was going to land but he needed love and he he learned that through that lesson that that christ taught him because in first peter chapter four He says, above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. For love will cover what? A multitude of sin. He learned that lesson. And lastly, he needed courage. Boy, did he need courage. John 21, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you your life. Are you willing? And then finally, he realized what Christ meant by that in Acts 4 when he went out in front of the Sanhedrin. And he says, you know what, I don't care what you say. I'm going to continue to preach the gospel of Christ. I'll obey God rather than man. And they finally said, well, you know what, you're not going to preach anymore. And he went into a prayer meeting, and he prayed that God would give him even more boldness. And he went out, the Bible says, that he preached even greater messages. See, he needed to learn submission. The Lord taught him that. He needed to learn restraint. The Lord taught him that. He needed to learn humility. The Lord taught him that. He needed to learn grace and sacrifice and love and courage. See, all those lessons the Lord gave him. How does the Lord make a leader out of somebody like Peter? Well, first of all, he takes that raw material that's there 
in that person. And he puts it into the, the right experiences, the right teaching environment. And he gives them the right attitudes. And that's where Peter came out of. You know, the first 11 chapters of Acts, he's the leader of the church. Peter. He's the one who makes the move to replace Judas with Matthias after Judas betrays Christ in Acts 1. He becomes the spokesman of the church at Pentecost in Acts 2. He, with John, healed a lame man in Acts 3. He defied the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. He dealt with the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that story in Acts in Acts 5. He dealt with the problem of Simon the magician in, in uh, Samaria in Acts 8. He even healed uh, Ananias and raised Dorcas from the dead in Acts 9. And he took the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11. He wrote two of the most marvelous and glorious epistles that we have today in the New Testament. And all those things that Peter did were a result of Jesus teaching him. Taking somebody that's just plain and ordinary and just spending time with Christ and teaching him the things that he needed to know. You know, I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. (laughs) If God can use somebody like Peter, somebody who's just raw and rough around the edges like Peter, Maybe there's some hope for me. Maybe God can somehow work and mold and, and, and use me. See, the key is, is he can use any of us. We just got to spend time with him. We got to spend the time that we need to to learn from the experience and the teaching of Christ. We do that through church on Sundays. We do that through small groups. We do it through other ministries. But you need to spend time with Christ. You need to spend time in his word. You need to spend time with God's people. And God will transform you into a leader that he wants you to be. You may not be like Peter. I mean, there's different avenues of leadership. But we should all be desirous to be used of God. How did it end for Peter? How did all this come to a conclusion? I mean, he was kind of a wandering heart there for a while after he denied Christ. You know, he probably didn't really feel much worthy of anything. It's kind of like that that hymn, prone to leave the Lord I love. (laughs) Bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander. That was Peter. That's all of us, really. Church historian writes this, concluding Peter's life, basically... Tradition tells us that he was crucified. But before he was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his wife. And church historians say that he stood at the foot of his wife's cross and he kept repeating to her, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And after she had died, he himself was crucified and he pleaded with his crucifiers to crucify him upside down because he was unworthy to be crucified in any way close to how the Lord was. So he was crucified upside down. That's what tradition tells us. He was a leader. And we're here today and we're reading the word of God and and, and we're in a church. And it's because it all started with these 12 guys and these 12 guys had one leader who was a, a, a rough guy at best. When he gave himself over to God, God did a miraculous thing through his life. I think his life can be summed up in 2 Peter 3.18. Here's what he says. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be both glory now and forever. Amen. See, he could tell us to grow because he knew he needed to grow. Father, we thank you this morning for our time in your word. Thank you, Lord, for this this small little kind of brief look into the life of Peter as the leader of these apostles that you called and ordained to start what we know today as the church. Lord, we're thankful how your word touches our hearts. Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God would apply these truths to our hearts. Lord, I pray that for this church you would raise up leaders here. Lord, that these leaders would be those of your own choosing, that it wouldn't be because of a popularity contest, but Lord, that you would see 
people with the right material, the right experiences, and the right attitudes, and his desire to serve you. And that we would glorify and honor you as a church together for your honor, for your glory. Lord, if there's anybody here today who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, just like Peter, he can transform your life as well. He can take you from what you are right now into something that he desires you to be. He can take you from a place of sinfulness and guilt and burden and strife and anger and fear to a place of peace and joy and forgiveness and grace and mercy and love. But you have to go to him and you have to ask him. You have to tell him that you need a savior. You need a savior who is mighty to save that has the ability to save us not just for a day or for two, but forever. And when you renounce your sin, when you repent of your sin, when you turn from your sin and you turn to that almighty God in faith, believing that Christ died for your sins on the cross, he will change you. And your life will never be the same in a most glorious way. I've never, ever met a Christian who has truly come to faith in Christ and is growing in their faith. I've never met a Christian turn to me and say, boy, I wish I never would have done this. Never. I've met a lot of people who've made a false commitment, who've made a false profession and turned their back because they were trying to do it all in their own power. But I've never met someone who's genuinely born again, transformed from the, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, who has the spirit of God dwelling within them that would share any regret about the freedom that they now have in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would draw each one to you today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.